Welcome back to the Social Psych of Prejudice. I'm Shana, and we'll continue today by discussing who is affected by prejudice and what that can look like for health professionals. The question of who is affected by prejudice is the easiest part to understand, because the answer is everyone. However, there are certainly populations who are affected disproportionately. Prejudice has many faces. The more well-known ones are racism, sexism, nationalism, ageism, mentalism, as well as prejudice against sexual orientations, religion, body appearance, and attractiveness. And many more exist than this, including positive prejudice. Each face of prejudice has a history and research behind it, and although the background for each of them is very different, the root causes of prejudice that we discussed are theorized to be the same. Therefore, establishing an understanding of prejudice first may help to provide the knowledge and resources to reduce prejudice of the many types across the board as a result. Prejudice can manifest in many different ways. The ways which we are most familiar with are discrimination and hate crimes, the blunt and harsh realities that many people experience. However, there are more subtle methods as well, which can be arguably just as harmful, especially if a health professional doesn't recognize it. So what does it look like when our care is not actually care? Let's take a look at some case studies to demonstrate this picture a little more clearly. Case study number one. 60-year-old female presents for six months follow-up on annual labs. She has no complaints today. She has a past medical history significant for marked intellectual disability and bilateral sensorial neural hearing loss. Patient's health is complicated by low socioeconomic status, low health literacy, and inability to afford hearing aids. Upon reviewing labs, a PA student noticed that the UA came back positive for hematuria. With further digging, they find that her UAs have been positive for blood since 2012, which would have been six years at this point. No urine microanalysis or urology referral was ordered in the past for the patient. Upon discussing labs in the encounter, it is revealed to the PA student that the patient has never been told she has had blood in the urine for the past six years. Further discussion also reveals that the patient's aunt was diagnosed with renal cell carcinoma. The patient was sent for a urine micro and a CT of the abdomen and pelvis that day. So there are some obvious issues in this case study. So let's think about what the contributing factors were in this case. Was it the perception that the patient would be unable to understand what hematuria could mean? the time it would take to explain the lab results to the patient given her history of cognitive deficits and hearing loss? Or was it the marked complexity of the patient overall? Likely, it was a combination of all of the above. In an article by Cron and Fox published in the Journal of Applied Research in Intellectual Disabilities, they discussed the long history of mistreatment of those with cognitive deficits. For over a century, people with disabilities were institutionalized for medical care, and there was an extreme lack of knowledge on what adequate care required. In the 1950s, deinstitutionalization began, but it actually wasn't until the 1980s when public health became more prevalent in the medical field. That's when we started discussing a medical care more grounded in social context. We importantly started to actually consider what role does someone's environment have on their disabling process. According to Glover and Ayub, medical research completed in 2010 shows that those with intellectual disability have a median age of death that is 25 years younger than the general population. Insufficient knowledge about the health needs of those with intellectual disabilities has led to the dangers of what Ali et al. called diagnostic overshadowing. 
This occurs when the signs or symptoms from conditions from either physical or mental ailment are erroneously attributed to the patient's intellectual disability. Consequently, these patients often experience delayed diagnosis and treatment of several conditions. We can't ignore the fact that as a population, those with intellectual disabilities have higher rates of adverse health conditions. We also cannot consider all adverse conditions preventable, as some are more so related to the primary disability that results in intellectual disability. However, there are certainly factors that are preventable with improved care. Examples cited in studies completed by Kerr and Woodhouse et al. include the fact that there are much higher rates of undetected vision and hearing loss among this population. Research also suggests there is a disparity in the engagement of preventative care, healthy lifestyles, and good hygiene. Moreover, there is research that shows providers often feel caring for those with disability is more challenging and requires more time to overcome accommodations required to adequately treat them. This is obvious and of course difficult in the busy schedules and limited time to see patients each day. In a study conducted by McCall et al. on physician experiences in providing primary care to this population, they acknowledge that caring for those with disabilities requires more social care than just medical care, and they frequently must address issues of access and hardship. Additionally, it was found that providers felt they had no training on how to relate or assist this population overall. Together, all these factors combined put this population at increased risk of unequal access to healthcare and death from preventable causes and uncontrolled conditions. You can feel free to pause and take a second to let any of this information sink in, but we're going to go ahead and keep moving on to the next case study. Case study number two. This is the Prescott v. Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. It's a well-known case in the media and was ruled on in 2017. I'm not sure if those of you listening know this case, but I myself hadn't heard about it until I started researching for my capstone. 14-year-old transgender male presents for emergent evaluation for suicidal ideation and self-inflicted injuries following transphobic harassment by peers. He is brought in by his mother. He is placed on a 72-hour hospital hold. After reiterating importance to staff about her son's distress with intolerance to his gender identity, staff reassured the mother that the patient would be addressed as male. Over the first 24 hours of his hold, the patient was repeatedly addressed with female pronouns. One employee told the patient, quote, Honey, I would call you he, but you're such a pretty girl, unquote. At 24 hours, the hospital psychiatrist concluded the patient should be released because his stay was inflicting more distress. The patient committed suicide weeks later. In reviewing articles over this case, the mother never blamed the hospital for the death of her son, as there were many other contributing factors like his mental health. However, the insensitivity to his identity certainly didn't improve the situation and didn't help to stabilize him, which is what he was initially being seen for. This case stood out to me for two different reasons, and I wanted to make sure it was a part of this series because it highlights two important populations those who suffer from mental health conditions, and those who are a part of the LGBTQ community. Let's start by discussing the stigma surrounding mental health. The word stigma originates from the Greek word stigmata, meaning a mark of shame or discredit. As you know, there is a long-standing history of stigma associated with mental health. Public stigma is associated with lack of engagement in mental health services and worse treatment outcomes. Over 44 million Americans have diagnosed mental health conditions. One-fifth of those with a mental health condition report still having unmet needs. 
but this stigma goes far past the medical field. Those with mental illness are more likely to experience housing and employment discrimination as well as homelessness compared to those with no mental illness. Stigmatizing belief about the competency of this population leads to compromising financial autonomy, restricts opportunities, and may lead to coercive treatment. I am happy to report that according to research by Parsepi and Cabasa, the American public seems to hold positive attitudes towards seeking professional help for mental health problems, and this trend is predicted to continue over time. However, we know that it has not always been this way, and it really wasn't until more recently in 2010 that mental health was advocated for with the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, as well as with some amendments made in the Affordable Care Act to ensure these patients would have more access to care through insurance. Mental illness has more implications than I think the general public realizes. According to the National Association of the Mental Health Program Directors, there is extensive evidence of a causal relationship between mental illness and chronic diseases like obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, asthma, arthritis, and cancer. This has to make you wonder how much influence stigma has on the morbidity and mortality of those with mental health conditions. The other highly stigmatized group related to this case study is the LGBTQ community. According to Healthy People 2020, research suggests discrimination against this population leads to higher rates of psychiatric disorders, substance abuse, and suicide. The LGBTQ community often face health disparities linked to societal stigma and denial of their civil and basic human rights. The prejudice they face is really alarming from a concept of both safety and mental health. Here are a few disparities healthy people listed to address in the coming years in healthcare. The LGBT youth are two to three more times likely to commit suicide. They are also more likely to be homeless. Lesbian women are less likely to get preventative services for cancer. Gay men are at higher risk of HIV and other STDs, especially amongst people of color. Transgender individuals have a higher prevalence of victimization and mental health issues and are less likely to have health insurance compared to heterosexual or LGB individuals. I once heard this quote, the absence of mental illness does not necessarily mean the presence of mental health. Just let that sink in a bit. Case study number three. 59-year-old morbidly obese woman presents to the OB-GYN clinic for postmenopausal bleeding and abdominal pain. The provider completed a routine pelvic and speculum exam with no abnormal findings. It was recommended she make dietary modifications, but the patient had already had an unintentional weight loss of 60 pounds over the last few months. The patient began exploring other remedies for her pain. She stopped eating gluten and treated her pain with over-the-counter analgesics. After months passed with continued symptoms, the patient was visiting family who convinced her to seek a second opinion. She made an appointment with an internist and discussed her symptoms. Blood work was ordered, and the next morning the provider told her to go immediately to the ER. She was admitted to the ICU, and MRI completed showed a volleyball-sized mass in the abdomen with spots on the lungs. The mass was removed by a gynecologic oncologist, and she was diagnosed with endometrial cancer. So when I read this case, I thought it was kind of a nightmare because it's the standard of care to at least have an endometrial biopsy with postmenopausal bleeding. So 
I guess, what were the contributing factors in this case to you? Was it the stigma around her weight? The assumption that the patient did not take care of herself? Was there some diagnostic overshadowing going on? Or was the patient's perception of how she would be treated again if she saw another opinion kind of affecting things? Again, it's probably a combination of all of the above. Remember how we discussed that prejudice is theorized to be a response to fear of the unfamiliar? Well, what's interesting is that with overweight and obese populations, prejudice has actually been shown to be more so tied to feelings of disgust rather than fear. I don't know about you, but that broke my heart a little reading this because it sounds and it is so cruel. But it's important to know because according to the CDC back in 2016, approximately 39.8% of adults were obese. So if you put that into perspective, that's nearly 40% of the adult population that's at risk for biased care. Obesity-related conditions like heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and some types of cancers are some of the leading causes of preventable death in the country. A common stereotype endorsed by providers is that obese patients are lazy and that they are less likely to be compliant with treatment and less likely to adhere to self-care recommendations. Therefore, according to Phelan et al., providers allocate less time educating obese patients about their condition, roughly 28% less time shows research. Diagnostic overshadowing is another huge downfall related to the care of obese populations. They are often referred less and offered less diagnostic testing than patients with normal weight. Avoidance of care due to fear of embarrassment in the healthcare setting may be one of the biggest barriers for this population. The long-term avoidance and postponing of care results in more advanced conditions that are more difficult to treat. It should also be noted that those negative experience with care, like embarrassment or negative judgment, are associated with low compliance rates as well as lower successful achievement goals, which reflects the self-fulfilling prophecy. In closing, the one thing I guess that really gets to me as someone who is passionate about the healthcare field is that there's actually individuals out there who are hesitant to seek help because they fear or they have a history of mistreatment or dismissal from a provider. It's exactly the opposite of do no harm. But that's it for today. There's a few more case studies I'd like to share with you guys, so tune in next time. Thanks!